It's interesting this point about God speaking some things into existence, and clearly it says that in other cases he made them out of what he had already created. Well, yeah, that's right. Um, in Genesis, you've got various different words in the Hebrew for create. For instance, I mean, one of them means quite clearly <coughs> ex nihilo creation, which means simply this, that God speaks and something which didn't exist at all comes into being, all right? Now, that's one of the Hebrew words, it's bara, and it means to create out of nothing. But also, another one, asar, means to recreate from existing material, you see. So you've got these different things. Like, for instance, when God said, um, you know, sort of, first of all, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, he brought the whole of matter into being. It didn't exist before, but he brought it into being, all right? Now then, on the physical side, all God then had to do was to recreate or rearrange the basic matter that he had brought into being with a word, all right? And the only points at which then, after that, something new came into being was when God created life, all right? So you've got sort of the creation of matter out of nothing, all right, when God just zaps the whole thing into being. So that is a creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, all right. On the physical side, then, it's just a question of God rearranging that. But also, God creates life, all right. He breathes into man, and man became a living soul. And he creates the animals, you see. And so at that point also you've got the creation of life, when again you've got something that didn't exist before being brought into existence simply by the word of God. So there's creation on the two levels. There's the something that didn't exist that suddenly begins to exist, and then you have also the rearrangement of something that is already existing. And sort of Genesis describes the interplay between those, those two things. Hebrews 11 verse 3. Hebrews 11 verse 3. Reads exactly the same thing. Or, right. By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. A lot of people today don't fully understand the implications of this. Um, I mean, it's like, for instance, today, it's very trendy okay to be atheistic today. Um, I say trendy because a lot of people believe things that if they thought them out a little they'd stop believing them. They'd realise that you wouldn't be that silly. And, and it's like with modern science and things, I mean you've all heard of the Big Bang, alright, you know that the universe began with the Big Bang and this sort of, you know, this primeval atom which contained the whole universe in embryo, kind of, it went bang and everything came into being at that point, you see. And everybody throws their arms up in absolutely, absolute delight, and we say, oh, aren't our physicists wonderful? Aren't astronomers amazing, you see? Now we know how the universe came into being. And to modern man, it's another example of we now no longer need God to explain this. Well, of course, the thing is that the problem that people have got is this, that how does nothing turn into something all on its own. 
Can you see that? Here's the point. And the Big Bang sounds great until you say, how did the primeval atom get there? This thing that exploded and became the whole universe, how did it get there, you see? And of course, here's the whole point, and eventually you can arrive that the only sensible thing that a sensible man can say is that there had to be somebody who was already existent, who could make something out of nothing. He says the whole point. You know, and of course this is exactly what God did. There was nothing, and he created something. And a Christian tends to be a little bit sort of, you know, hesitant in the face of modern science, almost as if we're kind of frightened that one day science is going to prove the Bible wrong. And of course science never has proved the Bible wrong about anything. It won't ever prove the Bible wrong about anything at all. And there's no need for us to be defensive, because intellectually, the odds are with us. Can you see that? Although the world out there, because we're so outnumbered, it feels rather the other way round. I mean, say that you believe in God today, and I mean, people laugh at you as if you're silly. But on the other hand, turn on the atheists and say, look, bud, how did nothing turn into something on its own? And then see who does the laughing. You can laugh at him for a change. Because he won't have the foggiest idea. He'll never have even thought about that. You know, and basically he'll evade it. And he'll start going on about big bangs and things like that. But, you know, it's important to understand that. And, um, you know, and I think that sort of Genesis really, it tends to be a bit of a, I mean, it's so important. I would say it's the most important book in the Bible because it's the first, obviously. And, I mean, if Genesis isn't true, then the rest of the Bible falls to bits, you see. Absolutely. I mean, how do you trust the book, the first chapter is a pack of lies? Or that the first chapter is only symbolic, or something like this. Mm. And, uh, you know, so the whole thing that God created something out of nothing is really very, very important, because the onus is on, for anyone who says that there isn't a God, the onus is on them to explain how nothing turned into something all on its own. It's an interesting thought, you know, I mean, be strengthened. To believe in God is certainly far more reasonable in the light of existence than uh, than to be someone who's an atheist. Also, this business about the Hebrews <coughs> about sustaining by his word. Again, we get the word as the source, mm. and he's sustained. And it's interesting because um, in, in astronomy, they have found out, you know, these things going around in the galaxies and in the universe. But every now and then, it seems as if God's had a little bit of a joke. He's made something go the other way. Oh, and I see. Explain it, you see. I mean, yeah. For instance, there are two moons going around Saturn. That's the one with the ring round. Yeah. And there are, there are about, I don't know, 16 moons. But there are two that go around fairly close to the planet's surface that change places every Revolution, you know, and oh, the other one yeah. becomes the other one, the other becomes the other one, and of course this makes them all scratch. There's no explanation at all. Yeah. And some go around the other way for no reason at all. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's been fascinating with, uh, you know, I mean, sort of as modern physics has understood more about the atom, because of course in the scripture what we've got is the statement that God has created everything. And then in Colossians, speaking about Jesus, because Jesus is the one who created everything that there is. It says that G it says in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. So what we've got in the scripture is we've got the statement, not just that God created everything that there is, but he's holding it together. Now it's interesting because as science has got inside the atom, 
One of the amazing things that they've discovered is this, that atoms shouldn't hold together, you see. And that in the atom, some of the laws of physics don't apply. And the laws of physics change, as it were. And that in the atom, really, the particles that make it up ought to be flying apart. But they're not. They're being held together. And they shouldn't be held together. And I think that's marvellous. I mean, how, how is it that the laws of physics change at the atom? And whereas they should fly apart, they don't. They hold together. Well, the answer is, in him, all things hold together. Jesus is holding every atom in the universe together. Now, and of course, we know as well now that if the atoms fly apart, if the particles actually manage to tear apart from each other, incredible power is released. And of course, in Peter, when he deals with the end of the universe, and remember, there's going to come a day when God will have finished with the universe as we know it, all right? And after Jesus has been reigning on earth for a thousand years, the last thousand years of human history, Jesus will have finished with everything that there is. He won't need it anymore, alright? And Peter says that the whole thing is going to go up in fire. Now, we know that that is exactly what would happen if every atom in the universe flew apart. There'd be a chain reaction and everything would go up in fire. If you read it, if you turn to 2 Peter, because it's an amazing description. Amazing description. If you find 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, and he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. Now that is the perfect description of a universe-wide chain reaction which is exactly what it's going to be. Every atom in the universe is going to fly apart when Jesus no longer holds them together because he's finished with them and doesn't need them anymore. He'll just release his grip and the whole thing will fly apart and what you've got described here will happen. And then having done that, God will then create a new heavens and a new earth and a new kind of universe will come into being. But, um, you know, I think that's, that's good. That's good. Another thing that always worries me is in the first chapter of uh, Genesis, it says that the world was was uh, in chaos and desolation. Well, if God had made the earth, we know that He knows the world, we know the universe, we know that it, all He does is perfect. Mm. So, how do you account for that being? Chaos and desolation. Oh, I see, yeah. For simple, yeah, okay, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, alright, you've got, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the, altars, of the waters. Now, what you've got here, remember here, we're on day one. This is the very beginning of time. Now, notice something else, first of all, in verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say, in the beginning was God, and God created the heavens and the earth. Now, can you see that? 
But here, the concept, the beginning, is tied up with God's creation of the universe. Can you see that? In the beginning, God created. Can you see that? The concept of time in Genesis 1.1 is linked with the creation of the universe. Yes? Can you see that? It's not linked with God. Can you see that? It doesn't say in the beginning there was God and then God created the universe. It says in the beginning God created the universe. The concept of time is linked with the creation of the universe. And of course again, that is right where 20th century man has got to. Einstein showed us very clearly we live in a space-time continuum. You cannot have time without matter. But that is a 20th century realisation. And yet here it is in the first chapter in the Bible. Clearly, time is linked with matter. Because you've got to have matter can only exist in time, and you cannot have time without matter. Okay, so again, here we see the Bible being incredibly scientific. All right, because obviously science can only prove the Bible right. Can't prove it wrong. Can only prove it right because the Bible is true. Now then, so what you've got is that God here, he zaps the matter of the entire universe into being. All right, remember what I was saying, that God creates all the matter in the universe out of nothing. It didn't exist before and suddenly it exists. And then having done that, it's a question of rearranging it, yeah? So simply, what we've got here is that God gets down to the act of creation, alright? And it's the first second of the first minute of the first day, alright? It's going to take God six days to do it, but now we're on the first second of the first minute of the first day. Because the clock started the moment that God started to create, alright? Now what happens is he brings the whole of the matter of the universe into being, then he has to rearrange it, alright? So then, obviously, as soon as he does that, immediately the earth is without form or void. It's chaotic, because all there is is the matter out of which it's going to be rearranged and created. So can you see that? That is why, as soon as God speaks the word, a matter comes into being, that matter is not organised how it is going to be, by the time that the six days are up. That matter is just raw matter. All the atoms that are needed are there. And then from that moment, God begins to rearrange it, you see. So obviously, when God brings all the material substances into being, the earth is without form or void. Its matter is not organized. So therefore, God starts to organize that matter. Can you see? And that is why the earth, it says here, is without form or void. Now then, other people explain, I don't know how many of you have heard of the gap theory, um, but the gap theory is often given as the answer to this problem. And that what they say is that between verse 1 and verse 2 are countless thousands of years, alright? And that in Genesis 1 verse 1, God creates the perfect universe, because everything God does is perfect, alright? That statement, by the way, is open to question. The fact that God does something doesn't mean it's perfect. God made me, but none of you are going to believe I'm perfect. You see, so firstly, the idea that because God creates a universe, it's going to be perfect, depends what you mean by perfect. God is quite free to create chaos as step one, and then build on it. 
See what I mean? But they say there was a perfect universe, and then they say the war in heaven happened. And that the fight between the bad angels and the good angels wrecked the universe, you see. And then in verse 2, God starts again. I mean, that's silly. I mean, sort of the idea of trying to introduce a gap. Because there's no doubt at all that when God spoke to Moses, uh, when he was giving the commandments, and he, he gave the commandment about the Sabbath, God clearly said to Moses, look, mate, I worked for six days, all right? In six days, I created everything that there was, all right? Therefore, you work. Say that the universe got disorganized again because of this angelic war, which is very fanciful. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that can suggest that. It's just a theory, but it caught on some years ago, and quite a few people do believe it. They try and explain fossils that way as well, using the gap theory. Well, that's right. They try to explain fossils, and of course there's no need to explain fossils at all. Now, obviously, we know that biologists who, who, who believe that, that the Earth has been here for millions of years and all that, I mean, okay, yeah, if the Earth has been here for millions of years, then you're going to have fossils. Of course. Of course you are. Therefore, they find the fossils, and they say, there you are, this proves that the Earth has been here for millions of years. But on the other hand, if the Earth is 6,000 years old, and after it had been created for a few hundred years, God destroyed everything on it with a flood, you would also have fossils. Can you see? Because everything that died in the flood would get fossilised. You see, so the presence of fossils, I mean, they don't prove evolution any more than they prove that there was a flood. But the point is that the fossils would be there one way or the other. But you don't, I mean, you don't need to be an evolutionist to kind of um, accept the fossils. You know, I mean, they're there. If Noah's flood is a true story, which obviously it is, then there are going to be fossils. But obviously the evolutionists say, here is proof that, that the Earth is all these millions of years old. And it's no proof of that at all. You know, the flood would explain them as well as, if not better than, the idea of evolution. And, um, you know, I mean, again, I don't think that, that the sooner that Christians feel free and bold enough to reject Darwin's theories as what they are, I mean, patent absurdities, the better, you know, but we sort of tend to feel a bit, because everyone out there believes evolution, but of course they do. They've either got to believe evolution or in God. They don't want to believe in God, so evolution is all they've got left. So it shouldn't surprise us that we're outnumbered, but the fact that we're so outnumbered shouldn't take away our freedom to believe the Bible in a literal way, because, as I say, I emphasise again, science has never disproved anything in the Bible. Never. Um, science, a lot of non-Christian scientists think they've di disproved things and regrettably a lot of Christians think that scientists have disproved things in the Bible but they never have, they never have at all I mean for instance society will say the theory of evolution has now disproved the Bible alright, and I mean no, because the theory of evolution is a theory a theory can't disprove a theory let alone a fact I mean, evolution is simply a theory. It's never been proven, and it won't be proven because it's not true. 
but uh, it hasn't been proven at all. There's nothing to touch what Genesis says, you know, it's pure history. There's no reason to disbelieve the Genesis account whatsoever. Even the carbon dating method which they tried to bring in to prove the age of the fossils has been proved, I understand, to be false. Well, yeah, because it's not scientifically possible to date anything over about four or five thousand years. The most accurate dating technique that there is is called dendrochronology, all right? Which is literally, if you cut a tree in half, you'll find that there are rings, different rings of growth. Now, and there are trees which are about 5,000 years old, and you can date them very, very accurately. But with all these others, sort of, like the carbon-14 dating is used on organic sort of stuff, i.e. bodies or fossils of something that were alive. And there are all sorts of others as well. I mean, there's one called rubidium strontium and things like this. And, and the idea of it is that they measure the breakdown of certain isotopes in rocks, all right, which have a certain half-life. And that they're like clocks that run down. And according to how far the clock in the rock has run down, you can tell how long ago it was that it was wound up. But of course, it has so many presuppositions. Firstly, it presupposes that the clock was wound up full before it started to yeah. wind down, <laughs> yeah, you see. Right, yeah. And of course, the point is that a solar flare, all right, a solar flare, and there have been plenty through history, a solar flare will reset every atomic clock on the Earth. Because a solar flare, the radiation emitted affects all the isotopes in the rocks on the surface of the Earth. You know, you see, so, I mean, again, they're not accurate. They're not accurate in any way at all. Um, if you knew that the isotope in the rock had never... I mean, if you've got a rock, all right, and it's got a bit of isotope in it, all right, and you pour it, you know, and you turn a tap on, and you leave it under a tap for a few hours, the water will start to dilute the isotope and give you a false reading. You see, and you've got to assume that these isotopes in these rocks have been totally untouched for millions and millions of years, which is an assumption, you see. You can't prove that. And so the whole thing about the dating system, it sounds good when you read it in your school textbooks, but, I mean, it is not proof at all. You know, it's not proof at all. It's like the old stalactites and the stalagmites, all right? Now then, given certain conditions, it does take so many hundreds or thousands of years for these things to form. But it doesn't change the fact that once man started doing his mining shafts, stalactites and stalagmites began to form in weeks, whereas otherwise they take millions of years. Can you see what I'm saying? So again, it's assuming that the process is a constant. I mean, and they are no proof of anything at all. I mean, it's like, say for instance, um, you've got a table, right? And we've got a snail, and it's crawling along the table. And we start to observe it, and it's at this point here, and we observe it for half an hour. And in that half an hour, it's travelled in a dead straight line to here, alright? So then, we start to view that snail, and as we view it, we see a definite pattern. It's moving at a constant speed in a constant direction, okay? Now then, what we cannot then do is to say, therefore, 
given that this snail, as we've observed it, is travelling at so many feet per hour, alright, over half an hour, you could then project and say that means that this snail started its journey X millions of years ago over there. <laughs> because the point is that someone might have put the snail down there two minutes before we started to observe it. Can you see what I mean? So as we look at nature, yeah, sure, we're observing certain laws in nature because that how that is how God has arranged nature to work. But when you therefore say that the answer to nature is that these laws, you know, that, that nature has been doing that, we project it back so many millions of years, is ridiculous because you're presupposing, you're making an assumption that nature has always been there just on its own. And that's an assumption. It's not allowing for the fact that God could have put it there 6,000 years ago. In the same way, it's not allowing that I might have put the snail down on the table 10 minutes ago. And then the bloke who observes it for the next half hour thinks that snail's been doing that for hundreds of years. Well, it hasn't. I've only just put it on the table. But he didn't observe that. And this is the point. Science is observation. And because no one was there to see how the universe started, no one can say for sure how it did start. You cannot prove scientifically how the universe started. What you can do are to look at certain theories and say, yeah, it sounds reasonable, but you can't prove it. All right? Therefore, what that means is this. We cannot prove that the Bible is true. Of course we can't. But on the other hand, no one can prove it isn't. You see? And that when somebody says, look, there isn't a God, that is as much a statement as faith as when we say there is a God. And when somebody says that the universe is a result of an accident and it was just a big bang, that is as much a statement as faith as when we say that the Lord created the universe. N neither can be proven, of course they can't, because there's no one there to see it happening. So both statements are unprovable, but the point is both are statements of faith. And yet the point is that today, the people who believe in the Big Bang and that the universe happened itself, they speak as if it's been proven. And us Christians, being at heart wallies, let them get away with it. We shouldn't let them get away with it. You know, we ought to say, well, okay, you've got more faith than I have. What? Well, how did nothing turn into something all on its own? And you say to them, I can't believe that happened. You see, and that you, you've got to show them that they're as much, it's a statement of faith to them, as much as it is for us to say that God created <coughs> the universe. And, um, oh, it was said once that to believe that the universe happened by accident is a bit like saying that the Encyclopedia Britannica was the result of an explosion in the printing works. And I mean, they're the kind of odds you're talking about, you see. So, I mean, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and modern science has never been able to come up with anything that, that, that debunks that or shows that to be unreasonable or anything. It's and Peter it tells us, doesn't he, that um, uh, a day of God's day is a, is, a, is a thousand of our years. So, presumably, when he started creating the earth, that took three to six thousand years, didn't it? It took six days. Oh, no. Time, that takes six thousand years. Oh, That's no. It. No, it's quite clear from Genesis that 
creation took six times 24 hours. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that at all. You don't think the Spirit was talking in the Lord's time, and that would mean 6,000 years? Right, okay. Now, the answer to that is this. Um, when, when the clash between modern science and Christians, or modern science and the Bible, happened, the sad thing was it was Christians who threw the towel in. And I think this is a tragedy. Rather than stick with the truth of the Bible, Christians gave in. And they started trying to make Genesis accommodate with um, all the theories of evolution, etc., etc. And that was an absolute tragedy. Now, the point is this, that up until Darwin, the church historically and Israel has always believed that the earth and the universe was created in six times 24 hours. All right? That belief has... I mean, that is what Christians have believed throughout the centuries, until the theory of evolution. When, supposedly, science had proven, which it hadn't, the whole thing was a con, but supposedly science had proven that the Earth was millions of years old. Now, it wasn't proven at all. People were taken in. But people thought that science had proven that the Earth was millions of years old. Therefore, Genesis couldn't be true. So therefore, Christians, they started to kind of say, oh yeah, the days in the Bible, they're not literal 24 hours, they're kind of long geological periods of time. Now note that this was the only time in the church's history that anyone had ever started to make these kind of allowances. Because after all, Genesis had never been threatened in this particular way before. So then, the only reason that there has ever been any questions as to are the days in Genesis 24 hours or something else. Remember, that question has only been raised in the church since Darwin's theories, you see. So then the only reason that that question gets raised is to seek to accommodate Darwin, alright? Now then, if one brings in what Peter says, that a day in the Lord is as a thousand years, and tries to fit that in, then the result of that is that creation is not in six times 24 hours, but it's in 6,000 years. And of course, an evolutionist is going to laugh at you as much as if you believe the universe was created in six days, as if you believe it was in 6,000 years. So, can you see, bringing in the idea that a day of the Lord is as a thousand years, no one does that. There are two camps. There are Christians who believe that Genesis 1 says 6 times 24 hours. And there are other Christians who believe that Genesis 1 accommodates evolution. Alright? Now then, the important question is, which one is true? Does Genesis chapter 1 tell us that God created the universe in 6 24-hour days? Or does it paint us a picture of this long amount of time that is absolutely ageless. Now, which is the answer? Because in finding out what Genesis actually says, then we know where we are. For instance, if Genesis says that God created everything there was in six times 24 hours, if you then believe that evolution is true, at least you've come to the conclusion that the Bible is wrong on one of the most important things it teaches. 
and then you can throw your Bible away accordingly if you're going to be consistent. So what does Genesis say? Well, I put it to you that give Genesis 1 to any child, to any passing Martian who's just happened on the earth, you know, who's just landed, give Genesis chapter 1 to any thinking being who doesn't have any presuppositions. Ask them to read it, and they read it. And you say, right, according to that thing you've just read, how long did it take God to create the universe? And the answer will be 6 times 24 hours. Can you see what I mean? In, 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 in sort of the thousands of years that we've had the Old Testament, and throughout the church age, that was never questioned until the theory of evolution came on the scene. Can you see what I'm getting at? But, on the other hand, let's say that there's some doubt that reading Genesis 1, let's just say it's ambiguous. Let's just say, no, you cannot finally discover whether Genesis 1 is talking about 24-hour days or X millions of years long days, all right? Well, fortunately, there's a verse in the Bible which absolutely settles it once and for all. Now, if you turn to Exodus, and we find the Ten Commandments, and this, this settles it absolutely for all time. And I mean, believe me, these people who are sort of saying that, um, <laughs> you know, that sort of Genesis 1, sort of like that you can't tell whether the days are 24 hours or that, it's absolute bunkum. You can tell that the days are 24 hours. Right, find Exodus 20, and I'm going to read verse 8. Right, now then. Now remember, this is God speaking to Moses. Alright? So, here we've got the bloke who wrote Genesis chapter 1 having a conversation with the God who told him to write it. Okay? So we've got the two people involved in the authorship. We've got God and we've got Moses having a conflab together. Now then, listen to this. And this is God speaking to Moses. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your manservant or your maidservant or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates. Now listen to this. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now that settles the question once and for all, doesn't it? There, God clearly speaking to Moses harkens back to the six days mentioned in Genesis 1 and clearly shows that they were six times 24 hours. Now that, that ends the debate for all time. Absolutely for all time. I mean, the Bible is the Word of God. Of course, this, this statement of Peter was really done after Pentecost, wasn't it? It was done to born-again true Christians, wasn't it, really? Whereas, you see, God is talking to the, the ancient Hebrews who wouldn't it, understand, perhaps, that difference of the... Yeah, the thing about Peter is that he's talking there in the context of the Second Coming. And, of course, the distinctive thing about the second coming is that no one knows when it's going to be. 
If we knew when the rapture was, if if you if you had the date for the rapture, which you don't, and you never could have it, but if you had the date for the rapture, I could then do my sums and tell you the date of the second coming. It's that precise. But no one has the date of the rapture. No one knows. So it's not possible for anyone to know when the second coming is going to be. Alright? It's just not on. It might be tomorrow, the rapture might be tomorrow, and the second coming in seven years later, or the rapture might be in another 500 years. Do you see what I'm saying? And there's no way of finding out one way or the other. Now, it's in that context that Peter is writing to Christians who really would have loved the rapture to have been imminent because they were being persecuted. And Peter's just right, he's saying, now look lads, he says, now come on, be patient, alright? The Lord says that he's coming soon. And these people are thinking, well, the Lord said he's coming soon. Where is he, you see? And that Peter's just right to say, look lads, the Lord's soon isn't necessarily going to be your soon, alright? And it's like, for instance, the day of the Lord, in actual fact, how long does the, I mean, this great day of the Lord that's coming at the end of history, how long does it last? I'll tell you, it lasts 1,007 years, <laughs> alright? Because when the rapture happens, the church goes to heaven, and then the tribulation starts on earth. There you have the beginning of the great and terrible day of the Lord. But that great and terrible day of the Lord then lasts for seven years and then goes through for a thousand years when Jesus is actually reigning on earth. You see, so a thousand and seven years is the great and terrible day of the Lord, you see. And that Peter is just writing, saying, look, on this issue of is Jesus coming tomorrow or the day after, okay, just settle it that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And, uh, you know, so, so don't get too hung up. The Lord isn't slow concerning his promise. This is the whole thing. They were getting screwed up. Ah, oh, Jesus hasn't come back yet. His promise has failed. And Peter is writing saying, no, his promise hasn't failed, but I understand why you're so keen for it to be fulfilled now because you're being persecuted. So the thing about a day, in the, you know, that a day and a thousand years being the same with the Lord isn't actually anything to do with Genesis in that sense. Um, you know, so, so it doesn't relate in, in that sense. Anything else on, on, on this, or related subjects, or even different subjects? It's interesting that you suggest that the, the rapture happens before the tribulation. That's right. Suggest. <laughs> state. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. Yes. Can you, oh, what, how can I demonstrate that the, that the rapture is before the second coming? Okay, so the question we're dealing with now is that I, I said that the rapture of the church is going to happen, then there's going to be the tribulation on earth with the church in heaven, and then you get the second coming, all right? And justify that position. Now, it's only fair to tell you that I would imagine the majority of Bible teachers would tell you that the church will go through the tribulation, all right? And that they will tell you that the rapture is at the same time as the second coming. Now, let's just define our terms here, alright? Let's deal first of all with the rapture. Now, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians, and we'll sort this out. And I mean, this is good news all the way, this is. I mean, this is, 
this is really something else. If you find 1 Corinthians, sorry, what am I saying? 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now then, first of all, why do we use the term rapture? The term rapture is used because it comes from a Latin word, rapio, which means to be caught up. That'll make sense in a minute. Right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Now the context, partly, of what Paul writes to the Christians in Thessalonica is that they, he had spent time with them and he had taught them about the last things. He had taught them how the earth was going to end, all about the second coming, etc., etc. But then false, false teachers had come in and started to screw them up. All right? So the first and the second epistles to the Thessalonians give us a lot about the end times. Now then, listen to this. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. He says, We would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now then, those who are asleep. I've covered this here before in other tapes. The phrase in the Bible, asleep, is simply, when a believer dies, if you were to drop dead tonight, okay, you lose your body. That's what death is. When you are separated from your body, you're dead. That's what biblical death is, okay? Even scientists wouldn't disagree with that. When you and your body part company, finally, you're dead. Now then, the Bible then says that if you're a Christian, you're asleep. And of course, what's happening, the moment you die, the real you, your soul, alright, your soul, there's three parts of you. There's your body, that doesn't need any explanation at all. The soul, which is you, your mind, emotions, your will, your personality, that is you, your soul. You are a soul. Like we say about an old lady, she's a dear old soul. The soul is the real you, that's Deborah. And the third bit you've got is your spirit. Now, your spirit is totally impersonal, but your spirit is simply that which unites you to God. And when you were born again, your spirit, which was dead, was brought back to life and the Holy Spirit became one with your spirit and the life of God and Jesus' life is channeled into your soul through your spirit and then it's lived out through your body, alright? So when you die, you lose your body, your body goes into the grave, but you, your soul, the real you, you go to paradise to be with Jesus in heaven because paradise is in heaven now. Now, in that state, you are said to be asleep i.e. your body is asleep. And the reason that your body is sleeping is because one day it's going to wake up again. I'll come back to that in a minute, alright? Now then, but we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So, your loved ones who died as Christians, they're, they haven't got their bodies at the moment, but they're in paradise with Jesus in heaven, alright? You know, they're fully conscious they're there with Jesus. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now Paul is saying, look, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, God is going to bring them back with Jesus. Interesting. God is going to bring all the dead saints back with Jesus. 
For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now he's talking about the coming of the Lord. Alright. And he's saying that when the Lord does come, that we aren't going to get the benefits before the people who have already died. He says the people who have already died are going to get the benefits of Jesus' coming back before we do. Let's keep going. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. I have a standard joke here. This is nothing to do with revival in the Brethren Church. <laughs> the dead in Christ will rise first. I'll forget that. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now then, what happens here at the rapture? You're going to see in a moment why it's called the rapture. That here we have Jesus coming to earth again. Now then, Jesus physically is living in heaven. Physically, that is where Jesus lives, in heaven. He's here by his spirit, but Jesus physically lives in heaven, all right? Now then, at a particular point in history, and we don't know when it's going to be, he will return to earth, but not to land on the earth. Let's keep going. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up. Now that's where the Latin word rapio, hence rapture, comes from. We who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now then, what Paul is saying is this. We've got the reference here that the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, when you get home, read 1 Corinthians 15 really carefully, because that's the parallel passage to this. And you'll discover that in the Bible, the dead rising always refers to when they get their bodies back. Now then, what happens at the rapture is this. Jesus will return to the earth, only he won't land on the earth. That doesn't happen until the second coming. But Jesus returns to the earth. Now, when he gets in the air, in the clouds, in the outer atmosphere, as Jesus arrives, all the Christians who are dead through history, they come with him. Now, as soon as Jesus hits the atmosphere, all the Christians who have been in heaven with him and they're brought back, they get their glorified bodies. All right? And therefore they rise. They're fully alive again. All right? They get their glorified bodies. Now then, then, after that, we who are alive, now we're talking about all the Christians who are still alive on the earth at this event, the rapture, all the Christians who are alive are caught up, they ascend. You know how Jesus ascended, alright, at the end of Luke and the end of the Gospels, boom, up he went. Well, that's going to happen to all the Christians who are alive on the earth. And by the time you get up into the clouds with Jesus, you're going to have your glorified body, alright. So the rapture is going to be when Jesus is in the clouds, in the air, having brought all the dead in Christ who get their glorified bodies, and then all the Christians alive on the earth get their glorified bodies as well. Now, is that clear, the rapture? You've got that. Because the next question we're going to deal is, right, that's great, but when does it happen? Now, and obviously I can't give you any dates, but the thing is this, the question is, most Bible teachers will teach you that the rapture is at the same time as the second coming. 
Because just about all Bible-believing Christians are agreed that there is going to be a period of seven years on the earth where it, life is going to be unimaginably awful with the rise of the Antichrist, or the Great Tribulation, as it's called. Now, the controversy is this. Where the rapture happens <coughs> decides the answer to the question, does the church go through the Great Tribulation, or does the church not go through the Great Tribulation? Now, the majority belief is this, that the church does go through the Tribulation. If that is true, then the rapture is at the same time as the second coming. Now, I'm going to demonstrate to you that the rapture and the second coming are totally different events. They're separated by seven years during which the tribulation is raging down on earth. But the teaching that I'm going to combat is the majority teaching that at the end of the tribulation, which the church goes through, Alright, you get the second coming of Jesus, but as Jesus is landing on earth, as he's in process of landing on the earth, as he comes through the atmosphere, then all the Christians are raptured at that point, they're caught up to meet Jesus in the air, and then, because it's the second coming, they come back down to earth with him. Can you see what I mean? So these are the two points. When does the rapture happen? Is it at the second coming, or is it before the second coming? Now then, what I'm going to do is to demonstrate to you that it cannot possibly be at the second coming. Which means, therefore, it must be before the second coming, which means that the church doesn't go through the tribulation. Now then, how can I demonstrate this to you? If you find John 15... I'm going to start with something that Jesus said to the disciples. John, sorry, John chapter 14. Now, you have to understand that throughout the Old Testament, and the disciples were Jews, and therefore Old Testament men. You see what I mean? Their teaching had been based on the Old Testament. And the teaching in the Old Testament certainly gave a lot of teaching about what we call the second coming, alright? The only thing was that the Jews only thought there was going to be one coming, alright? Whereas we know now that Messiah was going to come twice, but the Jews thought he was only going to come once. That's why they're still waiting, you see, because they don't believe that Jesus was their Messiah. They're still waiting. Now then, the point is this. But when Messiah comes, the teaching of the Old Testament is this, that Messiah establishes the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel on the earth. Alright? Now then, it's in this context, this is what the disciples were expecting. They were expecting, and remember that they now know that Jesus is the Messiah. They have sussed now that there were two comings. Alright? But they know that Jesus is going to come again. But their teaching, based in the Old Testament, is that when Jesus did come again, it would be to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Okay. Now then, listen to this, John 14. This is Jesus speaking to them. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now let's understand this. Where is Jesus' Father's house? Where is it? 
in heaven, which is outside of the universe, all right? Uh, so this place that Jesus is talking about is not earth, it's heaven. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now notice this, notice this, that Jesus is telling them that he is going to heaven to prepare a place for them in heaven. Verse 3, And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now here's the point. There's going to come a time when you have the second coming. And at the second coming, Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth. Alright? So that at the second coming, Jesus lands on earth. And when he does so, he establishes his kingdom. Now, we're asking, is the rapture, which constitutes a different coming, is it at the same time as the second coming, or is it a different event? Remember that at the second coming, Jesus comes to earth and he stays. Alright? Jesus comes to earth and he stays. Now, bearing that in mind, let's read this again. He says, and he's talking to Christians, he's talking to the church here. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now what Jesus is saying is when I die and when I ascend and go back to heaven, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven. And he says, and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now can you see the thing here? Jesus is telling them of a time when he is going to come for them, i.e. the church. But when he does, he's going to take them back to heaven where he's prepared a place for them. Can you see that? This is what Jesus is saying to them. That he's going to come for them, his church. And when he does, he's going to take them back to the mansions or the rooms that he's prepared for them in heaven. Now can you see the difference? At the second coming, Jesus comes to the earth and he stays on the earth and he rules it. Here, Jesus is talking to Peter and John and everyone. And he's talking about a time when he's going to come, but not to stay on the earth, but to take them back to heaven. Now, can you see here that Jesus is telling them about another coming that is going to happen, but that isn't the second coming? And that Jesus is teaching them that a time is going to come when the church is going to be taken back into heaven to the place in heaven that he's prepared for them. Now then, here's my first point for saying that the rapture of the church is totally separate from the second coming of Jesus. Because if the rapture is at the second coming of Jesus, it means that then you're raptured into the sky, but you're straight back down to earth to stay with Jesus on earth, because that's where Jesus is going to be. But here, Jesus is saying quite clearly that a time is going to come when the church is going to be with him in heaven. 
Now, I'm telling you that the teaching of the scripture is this, that the rapture will happen, the church will be taken back to heaven, and we will stay in heaven with Jesus until the tribulation is over, and then we'll come back with him at the second coming. That the rapture is a totally different event. Now then, there's another one I can show you this absolutely clearly. If you turn to Matthew 24, and again, all I'm trying to do, and there are... There are probably about 20 or 25 other reasons I could give you. I'm just picking out two that are very, very obvious. Very, very obvious indeed. Now, and if you find Matthew chapter 24, and of course, for those whom Matthew 24 baffles, the answer to it is that Jesus is giving teaching about the Great Tribulation. Alright? He's teaching about the last seven years. Now then, like for instance, if you, um, in, in, in verse 4, he says, Take heed that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And then, if you go down to verse 15, he talks about, So when you see the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Now, that immediately lands this passage of scripture in history it's in a time of history that hasn't happened yet but it's in a time of history where the prophet Daniel tells us that the Antichrist will desecrate the Jewish temple okay in <coughs> Jerusalem now the Jewish temple hasn't even been rebuilt yet we're dealing with future history alright we're dealing here with a passage on the great tribulation on earth. All right. Now then, if you go through to verse 29, you've got immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the star will fall from heaven. Here you have all the signs associated with the second coming. So we've got to the end of um, the Antichrist's rule on earth, and the Great Tribulation, and we are now approaching the Second Coming. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, so this is the context. We are now at the Second Coming. Now then, if you move through to verse, uh, to verse 45, you now have Jesus starting to tell various parables teaching about this time, the second coming. And these parables go through into chapter 25, alright? And the parable that I want to look at is in verse 31, and it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And this parable is telling us what happens at the second coming of Jesus. Now then, of course, you know what happens. But when Jesus actually lands on the earth, we're now at the second coming, what he does is he gathers all the Gentile nations before him. All right? There's a separate judgment on Israel. All right? In verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. And that word in Greek for nations means specifically the Gentile nations. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So what happens here now is that Jesus separates all the Gentiles who are alive on the earth at the second coming. He separates them into two camps. 
On the one side, you've got all the people who were believers. And on the other side, you've got all the people who weren't saved, who didn't believe in Jesus. It's interesting the way that they're told. It's interesting the way that Jesus knows whether they're Christians or not. Because the rule is this. It was those who said, um, sort of, that um, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me, etc., etc. And then the Christians said, well, Lord, when did we ever see you in that state? And Jesus said, he said, when you did so to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Now, who are Jesus' brethren? Israel, the Jews, because Jesus is a Jew. In the tribulation, two groups of people are going to be persecuted beyond all belief. One are going to be the people who've got converted to Jesus in the tribulation. The others are going to be Israel, because the Antichrist seeks to destroy every Jew on the face of the earth. Now then, the Jews are going to be outlawed. Who are going to be the only people who help the Jews? Born-again Gentiles. Can you see that? The Gentiles who get converted during these seven years, because they love Jesus, they're going to love Jesus' people and they're going to help them. So Jesus, he separates all the people who have become Christians, and he knows they've become Christians because their faith shows full in works and the particular works are that they helped the Jews you see and all the unbelievers didn't help the Jews alright so this is how Jesus decides so then the point is that at the second coming alright Jesus gathers all the Gentiles on the face of the earth and he puts them in two camps on the one side you've got all the unbelievers on the other side, you've got all the Christians, all the people who've been converted in that seven years. And of course, what happens is the unbelievers are killed, Jesus kills them. Sorry about that for those who just believe that God is a God of love and that God never does anything drastic. Jesus kills all of those who aren't saved. And all of those who are saved, they then repopulate the earth during the thousand years. Now, the question is this. I'm maintaining that the rapture is before the second coming. It's split by seven years, all right? I'm maintaining they're two separate events. And the only thing that links them is that at the rapture, the church goes back to heaven and stays there with Jesus until the second coming. But there are many people who will tell you that the church goes through that seven years and that the rapture and the second coming are one and the same event. So they're saying that as Jesus approaches the earth for the second coming, up go all the church, all the people who are saved, up they go and meet Jesus in the air, and then immediately come back down to earth with him. All right? Now then, question. If that's the case, who are the sheep at the judgment of the sheep and the goats? There won't be any sheep. Because at the rapture, all the believers on the earth get glorified bodies. Now, if the rapture is at the same time as the second coming, as Jesus was approaching the earth, all the believers would be raptured, get glorified bodies. There's no procreation in glorified bodies. 
they would then come down with Jesus and land on the earth with him. But the point is, at the rapture, every believer goes up to meet Jesus in the air. Who are the sheep at the judgment of the sheep and the goats? Yeah. Can you see there's no one left because all the believers are raptured? So can you see it's impossible, absolutely impossible, that the rapture and the second coming are one and the same event? They're totally separate events. And of course, in actual fact, the truth of the matter is that until Jesus removes us from the earth, until the rapture of the church and the church goes back to heaven, the great tribulation cannot happen anyway. Because in the great tribulation, Satan, in order to do what it's prophesied that Satan's going to do, Satan has to have practically unlimited power. Can you see? Satan has got to be much freer than he is today. But as long as the church representing the authority of Jesus is on the earth, Satan can't move. And the problem is this. As a Christian, as part of the church of Jesus Christ, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, during the tribulation, we know that the, that the Antichrist can overcome the saints. Now, there's a problem here. I'm part of the church. If I was there during the rise of the Antichrist, and if you were there during the rise of the Antichrist, when the Antichrist came running after us to do us in, do you know what we could do? We could all get together in a prayer meeting, and in the name of Jesus we could say boo to him, and he'd run away. Because as the church we have authority over Satan. Can you see that? So there's no way that the Antichrist can overcome the church. There's a scripture anyway that says the gates of hell shall can't prevail That's right. Not against the so church. Even the tribulation, if, if the That's church right. Was there, That's right. Yeah, because the church yes, yes. isn't there. The church is in heaven. People get converted in the great tribulation, but they're not part of the church, and they don't have the authority of the church. Therefore, Satan can overcome them. They're still saved, but Satan can overcome them. So the all-important thing about this is that we've established from this, although many people wouldn't agree, which is fair enough. I mean, I've never had anyone actually demonstrate the contrary from the Bible. I mean, I've shown you what the Bible says. I've never... I mean, I've heard people who say, oh, the church goes through the tribulation, but I've never heard anyone prove it from the Bible, you see. But the lovely thing is this, that... Before the tribulation happens, we will be in heaven with Jesus. You know, and I mean, the terrible atrocities that will go on during this seven-year great tribulation on the earth, it's marvellous to know that we won't be there. It's absolutely terrific. You know, that we can look forward to the rapture when we'll get our glorified bodies. And, um, and that will be really good. Amen. <laughs> Those, those people will be, um, then, are they that magic 144,000 that we've seen? Right. Are they the ones then who have been converted during that time? Okay, now let's, right. If you go to Revelation, if you go to Revelation, and the thing about Revelation is that it's supposed to be the most difficult book in the Bible, isn't it? It's supposed to be the most mystical, the most unfathomable book in the Bible, isn't it? 
I've got into trouble for saying this, but it's a doddle. Alright, and I'll show you what a doddle this book is. Alright, you can go home tonight and you can read it understanding it. It's a doddle. Because what we've got is this. In the Revelation, through when you get to chapter 3, you get letters to various churches in Asia Minor at the time that John was on Patmos. And Jesus dictates these letters to John and John sends them to the churches, alright? Then you get to chapter 4. Now then, what I'm going to say is this. That chapter 4 and 5 are the rapture of the church. And chapter 6 onwards is the history of the world from the rapture of the church onwards. It's a chronological account of the great tribulation on the earth followed by the return of Jesus and the thousand year reign of Christ, the destruction of the universe, the final judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. So then, from chapter 6 onwards, this book is a chronological account of the last 1,007 years of human history. Alright? Now then, so what I'm saying is that verses 4 and 5 are the rapture of the church. Now then, chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and lo in heaven an open door. Now why is the door of heaven open at this point? Well, it's, it's open to receive the church. It's the rapture of the church, you see. And heaven is an open door. If you read through chapter 4, you'll find that in chapter 4, heaven, apart from the angels, is empty. If you read chapter 5, you'll find that heaven is full up. Why? Because the church have arrived between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Alright? So, by the time you get to the end of chapter 5, you're dealing with history at the point of the rapture. John, on Patmos, has been moved through time into the future, because remember, this event hasn't happened yet, and he's receiving visions from the point of the rapture onwards, alright? So he sees the open door in heaven. Why? Well, because Jesus has gone to earth to bring the church back, so the door's open ready. Suddenly, you know, heaven fills up because the church is there now. Now then, what happens then is that in chapter 5 you get the opening of the seals, alright? And the seals represent, this, this kind of scroll represents what is now going to happen on the earth in the great tribulation which lasts for seven years. By the way, the reason I keep saying that the tribulation is seven years is because it's in the... In the prophecies in Daniel, there's the prophecy of the 70 weeks, alright? And a week is a period of seven, alright? Week simply means seven. And that according to the prophecies of Daniel, the Great Tribulation is the last week that Israel has. I'm not going to go into that now, that's too complicated, but a week is seven years, alright? That's what it means in that context. So then, now, Jesus breaks the seal. All right, and he's got the scroll. Now then, what happens now is that you get various seals, and then you get various vials, and then you get various trumpets. Okay. Now what we've got there is a is is a code. All right, that helps us to understand. And the code is this: that what happens is that the set what happens in the seven years when all God's judgments are poured out on the earth, are all contained 
in these seven seals, alright? Now, seals 1 to 6 are straightforward. You read through Revelation and you see what seal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6 is. And that's all straightforward. The first six seals and the relevant curses are sent by God upon the earth, alright? But then you get to the seventh seal. Now it gets a little bit complicated, because the seventh seal, the last phase of this is a real biggie. It's a bit complicated. And the seventh seal is broken down into seven vials. So there are seven parts to the seventh seal. Can you see what I'm saying? Seal 1 to 6 represents six judgments which come upon the earth. Seal number 7 are more than one judgment. And it's shown that, that all the judgments that make up the seventh seal are broken down into seven vials. Alright? So from that point onwards, you get the first vial, or subsection 1 of the seventh seal. Alright? You get the first vial and the particular curse, the second vial, the third vial, etc, etc. And then you get to the sixth vial. So, so far, the seventh seal has consisted of six separate judgments. But when you get to the seventh vial, things get a little bit complicated again. Because the seventh vial is more complicated than the others, and it's comprised of seven trumpets. So, and then the seven trumpets are showing the seven parts of the seventh vial. Can you see what I'm getting? So really, you've got this code, and it's showing you the chronological events that are going on in the Great Tribulation. Now then, also, as you're reading through this, you'll find as well that you get various other things. For instance, you get the passage about the 144,000, which I'll deal with in just a moment. And then as you read through it, you get the various images of the beasts, the Antichrist, the false prophet, etc., etc. Now, what you've got to remember is that you're reading through it, and you're dealing with one seal after the other. You're dealing with chronological events. But if you read a novel, or say you're watching a film, alright, and I um, mean sort of say say you're watching a love story on telly or even a mystery film on telly now you're dealing with a chronology, you're watching the events of the story, alright but sometimes if you're watching a film or reading a book suddenly the chronology comes to a halt and you get explanations of what's going on in the background you get the backcloth to the chronological events so if you were watching a film there you are, you're watching chronological events in front of you. And here, the seals and the vials and the trumpets are the, chrono the chronological events. But suddenly, there you are watching your film, and suddenly, kind of, the screen goes all watery. You know how it is, it goes all watery and hazy. And suddenly, you get a fresh scene, which isn't part of the chronology, but maybe it's some... Um, so, uh, sort of a flashback to something that happened years earlier or it shows you what's going on in the background that's behind the chronological events that are going on can you see what I mean? 
Therefore, what happens is that as you read through it, the seals and the vials and the trumpets, every now and then as you're reading your Bible, it'll suddenly be as if all the pages go watery because the chronological order is now broken into to give you background information which makes sense of what's happening. Can you see what I'm saying? Hence you get the visions of the beast and the nature of the Antichrist. All right. You get the war between the dragon and the archangel Michael, the battle that goes on when Satan's thrown out of heaven. You get all these things. You get the woman with the sun and the moon. All right. If we've got time, I'll tell you, you know, the one with the moon and the stars. All right. If we get time, I'll tell you who that is. It's, it's very straightforward. So then, this is what's happening. Now then, here we've got the first of the things where you get what's going on in the background, okay? If you turn to um, chapter 6 of Revelation, now look at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, alright? So that's the chronological event. The sixth curse is about to be poured out on the earth. Go down into chapter 16, alright? The result of this curse, sorry, into verse 16. The result of this curse is that men are calling to the mountains and rocks and they're saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is the result, the terror that this sixth seal brings upon the people in the earth. And then look at verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand before it? Now then, you'll find in chapter 7 that now the chronological events are suspended for a little while because that question, who can stand before this great and terrible day of the Lord, is going to... All right, 144,000 Jews. Because remember, at the rapture, what happens? Every believer on the face of the earth goes to heaven. So, in the minute after the rapture, there's not one believer on the face of the earth. There's no one to preach the gospel. Now then, remember that the reason that the church came into being in the first place was because Israel blew it. God intended to bring salvation into the world through Israel. But when he sent Jesus, Israel didn't receive Jesus. They rejected their own Messiah. So God said, right, you've rejected me, I now reject you. And the church were grafted in. God said, Israel wouldn't let me use them, I'm going to use the Gentiles instead. So God cut Israel out and grafted the church in Israel's place. The church is now preaching the gospel and bringing salvation to the world. But even though God rejected Israel, all of his promises to Israel are still going to be fulfilled. And of course what happens is that the day will come at the rapture when God will remove the church and then he's going to bring Israel back in. And God will fulfill through Israel everything in the Old Testament it says he's going to do. So what happens is this, that as soon as the church is taken there's not one believer on the face of the earth. Immediately 144,000 individual Jews are going to be converted, just like that. Jesus is going to reveal himself to them. And all of them are going to be Jews, 144,000 Jews. These Jews are going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit, and they're going to preach like no one has ever preached before. And they are going to restart evangelism in the Great Tribulation.
For the continuation of this message, would you please go to the next tape? Thank you.